All right, I think we are about ready to get started, so we're going to begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you for this cool weather that reminds us that there is actually fall in Charleston. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we come this evening to take all of the things that we have been thinking about or worried about or occupied with and just leave those to the side for this hour. And we pray that you would open our hearts to whatever you might want us to learn from this wonderful book. Lord, we pray that you would open uh, what Lewis is up to in this book to our hearts and minds, that you would uh, bless us through the scripture that we'll be studying and that you would guide us through your Holy Spirit. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to have named that tune as usual. And some of you, not to put any pressure on anyone, some of you should know what this is. Okay? So just putting that out there. And I will see if I can get, there's my cursor. We're going to listen to a little bit of it. You're exactly right. Yes, go Marshall. Some of you may not know that this is actually uh, Jupiter from the planets by Gustav Holtz because you may think it is I Vow to Thee, My Country, uh, the great English hymn, uh, which is to this tune, but it is the Jupiter theme from Gustav Holtz, The Planets. So... Uh, it is a beautiful piece of music, and I will send you the link. I'm sorry, I should apologize to all of the people that uh, actually opened the email from last week's class, because I set you up with the music link colon, and you were probably expecting to have a glorious recording of Vaughn Williams, the lark ascending there, and it was just empty. I failed at cut and paste. But next time... Next time, we will, we will get there. So, uh, let's say together our scripture verse, and then we'll talk about why we just listened to what we listened to. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And as I've said before, I would commend to you to memorize that verse. It is a verse that is rich uh, in wisdom. So a little bit about Jupiter, which Marshall got on like the third note, like a Jeopardy person with the buzzer. Um, that is very impressive. Uh, 
Does anybody know why the Jupiter theme might show up in a C.S. Lewis class? Yes, that is true. Yep, yep, that's true. Yep. Yes. Yes, he did write about space. Yes, yes. More. Y'all are y'all are y'all are almost there. Yes, 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 and, okay, I'm, I'm very impressed that you know that much, so, um, so one of the things about Lewis is Lewis was a medievalist, a thoroughgoing medievalist. He knew more about the medieval world than just about anyone in the 20th century, and he loved the medieval cosmology, and he loved the medieval planets and the symbolism with each one of them and he was sort of obsessed with them. And so when Gustav Holst wrote this particular piece, um, he and Tolkien and some others went on multiple occasions to London to hear this played uh, by symphonies there. And he particularly loved the Jupiter theme because as Marshall was saying, it is about joy and this word that Lewis used that I bet none of you has ever used this word in a sentence, jollity. Uh, it's sort of like jolliness, uh, but it is, it is a word that is pregnant with joy and fun and all of that. And Lewis thought that the Jupiter theme was particularly beautiful. And he was so obsessed with the medieval planets that, as we just heard, uh, many people have always wondered about why are there seven chronicles of Narnia? What's the connection, the theme? And then Michael Ward, who is one of the probably top five Lewis scholars in the world, uh, was reading and deep in the Bodleian Library, and this light bulb went off in his head. And he thought, you know, each one of these Narnia stories, there are things that have the characteristics that were associated with one of the medieval planets. And then he went back and reread them along with a guide to the medieval planet's cosmology and discovered that each one of the Chronicles of Narnia, in fact, matches one of the planets. And so he published this paper, and all of the other Lewis scholars thought he had lost his mind and he was about to lose his reputation. And then they started reading his work and looking at the Chronicles, and they were like, he's right. It's been right under our nose all of these, like, 50 years, and no one ever figured it out. But Planet Narnia is his book about that, uh, and we'll hear more about Michael Ward in a minute. But Lewis loved this particular piece of music, and it has something to do with our chapter tonight. So we'll get to that in a minute. So a couple things about how to approach this class. Um, welcome to all of you who are here in person. Welcome to the people that are joining us online and through the podcast. Um, that group is growing every week, so we're delighted to have you. So if you're new, a couple of things about how to approach this class. There are three ways to do it. You can be on the beach, which means you just show up sometimes, occasionally. Uh, you don't read anything. You may not pay attention. Um, that's fine. I'm just delighted for you to be tuning in or showing up or whatever you do. Or you can snorkel on the things that you think are interesting. You can go deep, you can go down the rabbit hole, and then you can come right back out the rabbit hole and lie on the beach again. That's great. 
And then scuba divers. You can read everything. You can listen to the music link if I actually send it to you. Uh, and you can deal with all the long handouts. And I've been telling you about these long handouts, and I just want you to know that there's a pile that is beginning that's going to be coming your way. But you have been perhaps prevented uh, in a happy way by the fact that our copy machine has not been working for the past month, and it will not do double-sided and stapled copies. And some of these handouts are 20 pages long, so I'm saving them until the copier is working. So you may get like 10 of them in one class. So for some of you, I know that just makes you really excited. Uh, some of the rest of you are like, he is crazy. Uh, but whatever, it's fine. Uh, but there are some good handouts coming. And there's a good handout tonight. It looks like they might all be gone. If you didn't get one, uh, they will come in the email as well. Uh, another thing about the email list, if you are not on that email list, please sign up either on this notepad or if you're online or on podcast, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me a note and we'll add you to the list. There's a lot of stuff um, with those emails that's helpful. And I want to just announce again about mere Anglicanism. Uh, we just get more and more excited about this. Michael Ward, who we were just talking about, is uh, the... Uh, what I would call the cleanup speaker on this. He'll be the concluding speaker at the conference. He is, as I said, one of the top Lewis scholars in the world who discovered all of this about the planets and Narnia. Uh, he is absolutely brilliant. And uh, the fact that we can get him to come to Charleston for this is just amazing. And I have to say, I'm not going to embarrass the person who said this, but it made my heart so glad last week after class because someone in the, the, our class said, I'm so excited for this conference. I would love if you would prepare a reading list of things by these authors um, who are going to be speaking so I could be prepared when I come to the conference. And you just don't know <laughs> how beautiful the sound of that to my ears was. So in addition to the handouts that will be coming your way, there will be a list of these things. So I already recommended Alistair McGrath's If You If I Had Lunch with C.S. Lewis, which is such a terrific book, a great introduction to Alistair McGrath. And um, there will be uh, a recommendation on this list from Michael Ward uh, that is just a little essay that he wrote that's part of a larger book. If you love the Chronicles of Narnia, please do yourself a favor and get a copy of the new book that's called The Chronicles of Transformation. Uh, it is published by Ignatius Press, and thank you to my mother for giving it to me because I didn't know about it. Uh, but Michael Ward helped collect the essays, and then he wrote an essay in here. And there are, um, it's short, but each one is a really profoundly beautiful meditation on each one of the Chronicles of Narnia. So there are seven essays, and the first one made me weep while I was reading it. It's just so good. So do yourself a favor and get that. I will have additional recommendations coming along. This conference is starting to fill up. Um, we have, besides the people that are sort of in our back pocket that have group registrations that aren't in the system yet, we're up to about 600 people. Uh, so we probably will be able to take maybe 200 more uh, which sounds like a lot, but it isn't really. So if you want to go or have friends that want to come, 
um, please go ahead and get registered for that. So, last week, we had that glorious chapter where the bus flies up out of the pit of the gray town, and it comes over the rim of this cliff, and it lands in this beautiful green country where there's fresh air and bright, brilliant blue sky and shining bright light, and this light gives new perspective on the ghostly passengers who are see-through, like stains, Lewis calls them, on the landscape, and how solid the country is, that even the grass is so brilliantly green and so perfectly formed that these ghosts, when they walk on it, it doesn't even bend. And so these passengers on the bus have landed in this glorious, beautiful land, and they don't know what to do. So they're sort of clumped together near the bus, huddling together in uncertainty and fear. And Lewis paints this beautiful picture of the vast solitude of this green and light-filled land and how beautiful it is and how pregnant with life it is. And that you can see in the distance mountains and high cities and it's sort of a solemn but glorious beauty. And then as he's contemplating the beauty of this land, all of a sudden these beings start to approach. And often the distance, all you can see is that they are bright spirits. And as they approach, uh, they become more and more clear what they are, and they are human beings, but they are perfected human beings. They are beautiful. They are people of grandeur and majesty, and they approach the passengers. So we talked about some of the possible influences on this chapter, and one of the ones that we know was an influence uh, was the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in the Gospels. Um, that parable, you'll remember, is where Lazarus, the poor man, has died and is taken up to Abraham's bosom, and Dives is the name often given to the rich man. He's in hell, but Dives can see heaven across this chasm, and he can see Lazarus up there relaxing, enjoying himself, and he's like, what is that? That's not fair. He's my servant. Tell him to bring me some water because I'm thirsty. And so then we get a whole explanation from Father Abraham about why that's not possible and why Dives is where he is. Uh, but Lewis is playing with some of the concepts in that parable here. Um, the other thing is there's this beautiful passage that's in your email uh, about the green country and the beautiful mountains in Tolkien's brilliant work, Leaf by Niggle. Uh, Leaf by Niggle, please read that if you're, well, I don't care what level of the class you're in. Anyone would enjoy that book. It's so good. Uh, but it is this green country that he describes. It's very much like what we see in the chapter from last week. It's also very much like the celestial city in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Lewis loved Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, those of you who are Lewis nerds, uh, will know that Lewis's first Christian book was called The Pilgrim's Regress. Uh, that's a retelling of Pilgrim's Progress, but uh, reflecting Lewis's own spiritual journey. Uh, it also, and this is my favorite, uh, it is redolent of the description of heaven in Frodo's dream and the fellowship of the ring uh, when he's in the house of Tom Bombadil 
and he has this dream about a gray, shimmering silver curtain parting, and then there being water and a far white shore and a far green country with a river running through it. And that dream that he has in the house of Tom Bombadil, when you fast forward um, to the battle scene in The Lord of the Rings and the return of the king, and Pippin asks what happens when we die, Gandalf uses those same words. And then when Frodo is going to the gray havens on the ship and his heart is hurting at leaving his friends, the shimmering silver curtain parts and he sees a white shore and a far green country. It's just beautiful. So two major themes in that chapter, the beauty and strength and solidity of heaven. If you haven't read this chapter, please go read it. It's just beautiful the way that he describes what it's like. And the other thing that's beautiful is the, the majesty and beauty of the heavenly beings. This is something we don't teach about very much in the church, even though it's in the New Testament. Um, I would encourage you sometime, um, especially if you're a scuba diver, read N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. And that book has some really brilliant things about our misconceptions about heaven um, that can be very helpful. So, chapter four. Ugh, this chapter is so good. So, uh, I would love to read the whole thing out loud, but I'm not going to. Uh, just a quick summary is Lewis, we know that Lewis is the narrator here. As he sees the bright people approaching, he notices that each bright person is heading to one of the passengers. So he thinks these are going to be private conversations, and being a well-brought-up man, he doesn't want to eavesdrop on people's personal business. So he wanders off into a grove of trees. But he's followed by the big man. Now, I don't know if you remember the big man from the bus stop. The big man is the one that punched somebody out at the bus stop. Um, so the big man is there in this grove, and he's being followed by one of these bright people. And we learned that this bright person is called Len, and he used to work for the big man back on Earth uh, until Len got fired because he murdered one of his co-workers, and the co-worker's name was Jack. However, much to the consternation and dismay of the big man, both Len and Jack are in this bright country, which, in case you haven't figured it out, is heaven. Uh, both Len and Jack are in this bright country, and they love each other. And the bright, the bright spirit is just, that's just very clear that they love each other. And the big man is just outdone. How can this be? And so uh, Jack, the one who was murdered, doesn't come, but they send their love to the big man. Now, just, let's just think about it, this for a minute. Remember, this is 1940s England. Uh, the big man and Len and Jack are middle-class workers, probably in some sort of industrial concern. These are not men that say, I love you, to one another. So the fact that they send their love, that is not like anywhere close to normal. So that is a pretty good clue that something supernatural is going on here. But the big man is just outraged that Len is in heaven and the big man is in hell. And he says, well, it should be the other way around. And he insists that he is decent. He's a decent man. He's always done the right thing. 
and he says, I want my rights. I don't ask for anything I don't deserve. I want my rights. It's due to me. I've been a good person. I want my rights. And what the hell are you doing up here in heaven? So Lynn tries to say, no, 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 don't say that. Uh, and he says, things don't work quite the way you think in heaven, and that giving up your rights and giving up yourself are the first steps. And then he says with a twinkle in his eye that the big man was not always decent, but that that doesn't matter now at all. And then Len, the bright person, invites the big man to come into joy. And the big man is just absolutely outraged to think that a murderer would invite him to do something. And he says he doesn't want anyone's charity. He reiterates he wants his rights. He wants what he deserves. He doesn't want any more than that. What's fair is fair. And he tells Len to clear off. He wants nothing to do with a murderer. Len is filled with joy and mirth. And he says, well, I'll be your servant, Mr. Big Man. I'll be your servant as long as you like, whatever you want me to do. And the big man is still outraged and says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Get away from me. And then the big man tells Len to report the big man's outrage to the people in charge of heaven, to let those people in charge of heaven know that he does not approve of the way that they are running things and they'd better get it straightened out. And he then departs in a huff, saying he would rather be damned than to go along with Len. Well, of course, there's a little double meaning right there about being damned. So there are some major themes in this chapter that you could write a whole book on, but we are, we're going to just go through uh, and unpack what we can. So the first one is that rights, standing on your rights, thinking that you deserve heaven, that mindset is a huge impediment to entering heaven. And all through the scriptures, you see this, uh, that whole idea of humbling yourself, emptying yourself, um, and Jesus is our example of that. This is one of the reasons that I, you're going to hear me keeping referring to the Lord of the Rings. If you don't like the Lord of the Rings, I'm so sorry. Um, you have an impoverished wife. But, <laughs> but part of the reason that this, I love these stories so much is they are so full of biblical truth. It's not just in your face all the time. But one of the things that runs through those stories is this whole thread of self-abandonment, freely chosen servanthood, um, self-sacrificial actions, all of these kinds of things. So uh, this is part of the dialogue uh, in the book. So uh, the ghost is the big man. Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping its chest, but the slap made no noise. I gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults, far from it. But I'd done my best all my life. See, I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job. See, that's the sort I was and I don't care who knows it. And the bright spirit answers, it would be much better not to go on about that now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. 
I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was. See, I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me, and I'm only a poor man. But I got to have my rights same as you, see? And the bright spirit says, oh, no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You will get something far better. Never fear. Now, this is one of the reasons you've got to read this slowly, because you can get caught up in the action and miss part of what's going on. So some scripture directly related to this from Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And as Jeff Miller is fond of saying uh, in Ephesians, it says that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And Jeff will always say, what can dead people do? And of course the answer is, dead people can't do anything. But the very next verse has this wonderful two words, but God. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, raised us up. God is the one that does all of it. It is not because of our rights or our deserving. Uh, and then secondly, uh, this is a little known but really wonderful verse from Titus. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And part of what I love about that is just that ordinary word, washing. You only wash things that are dirty. You don't wash things that are clean. And what he's saying is we were dirty, we were hopeless in our sins, and because of the kindness of God and his love for us, he saved us not because of who we are or what we did, but just because he is mercy. Then the next part, second theme, forgiveness and giving up oneself are prerequisites for entering. So this is kind of the mirror image of the first theme. So here we are back with the big man who's the ghost. What I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for. Please just punch you, a bloody murderer, while I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. And the bright spirit says, that is a little hard to understand at first, but it is all over now. You will be pleased about it presently. Until then, there's no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? No, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I have given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what did it for me. And that was how everything began. Murdering old Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. That was the work of a moment. And I was half mad when I did it. But I murdered you, that is the big man, I murdered you in my heart deliberately for years. I used to lie awake at night thinking what I'd do to you if I ever got the chance. 
That is why I have been sent to you now to ask your forgiveness and to be your servant as long as you need one and longer if it pleases you. I was the worst. Well, just look at the contrast here. And part of what is said beautiful in what Lewis does here is he shows us what the redeemed soul looks like and says and experiences, something that we can only just see a shadow of while we're in this life and hampered by sin. But here, they are totally free from the burden and consequences of sin, and they are free to love and free to be utterly self-aware and at the same time, not to glory in their shame, but to glory in the riches of the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That no matter what you did, that when you give it all back over to Jesus and give yourself to him, then you are made new. And it frees you to radically serve like this. Uh, so much like Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then Matthew 18.35, this is one of the most chilling verses in the Bible. Uh, this, you will probably remember, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And remember, this is a parable that Jesus told about having mercy and forgiveness. And he could have chosen any parable, he could have made up any story that he wanted to, but he chose this one. And he talks about this man who owed millions of dollars to the king, and he just has not paid anything back. And so he's hauled in front of the king, and he's going to be sold into slavery with his wife and his children. And the, the man who has this huge debt that's more than anyone could ever repay, even if they put their mind and heart and body to it and worked and worked and worked, they could never repay it. The man begs for mercy, and the king has mercy on him and says, I wiped the slate clean, utterly clean, a debt that was beyond imagining or payment. And that same servant then goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him $5. And he says, give me my money. And he won't. This is the McGreevy version of this. Uh, give me my money. And he won't give him the money. And so he beats him up. And then the other servants hear about it, and so he's brought back before the king who forgave him. And he says, you know, you should have shown to your fellow servant the mercy that I showed you. And then he orders that the man be sent to prison after that. And then Jesus looks at them and says, this is the way my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We live in a culture that is full of unforgiveness and what I call righteous unforgiveness. People are like, I'm never going to forgive them because what they did was so beyond the pale that it is absolutely unforgivable. But the problem with that is that unforgiveness leads to bitterness and bitterness stains your soul, it stains your personality. And there's a great quotation, I was talking to Chip about this today, it's always attributed to Nelson Mandela, but I've never been able 
to actually find where he said it. So I don't know if he really said it. It might have been him, but there's a deep truth in it. And he says in this quotation, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping it kills your enemy. And there is so much truth to that, and our culture is full of that. But you see in this passage that we just read that this man has completely just forgiven. He has just let go of all of that, um, let go and realized that the things that he did were terrible, terrible things, murdering this guy in his heart and begging now for forgiveness and saying he will be the guy's servant as long as he wants. So you've got this, I mean, this is deep, painful, real, nitty-gritty life stuff. But what's so great in this chapter is it's interspersed with this just ebullient joy and mirth. So the third theme in this chapter is heaven is a place of great joy and mirth. And that's what the handout was about. Uh, There was a quotation in the handout that says, if there is not laughing in heaven, I don't want to go there. And without looking at your handout, can you guess who said that? Martin Luther. So Martin Luther said that. That does not go with our image of uh, dour German theologians, but he did actually say that. And heaven, when you look at the scriptures, joy just is like bursting out of every description that there is about heaven. And so uh, this is the first encounter where the big man meets this bright spirit. He, the, the big man, in his turn, was followed by one of the bright people. Don't you know me? He shouted to the big man ghost, and I found it impossible not to turn and attend. The face of the solid spirit, he was one of those who wore a robe, made me want to dance. It was so jocund, so established in its youthfulness. Mirth danced in his eyes as he spoke. And this, of course, is uh, what links us to the Jupiter theme, because Lewis was all about the joy that's just bursting out of that theme and the mirth that's in it. And you see in this bright spirit a fullness of joy and healthy mirth and laughter uh, that is just so attractive. Uh, But it's very threatening to this ghost, this ghost that's standing on his own rights. It just makes his back get even more up than it already was. Uh, So a few scriptures about this. This is Jesus in Luke's gospel. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. If you've never thought about that verse, I would encourage you to just take some time and think about that and think about what does that say about the heart of God? What does it say about the heart of God that there is such joy over a sinner who repents? And it's not just joy in God's heart, it's joy in heaven. That's big. And the second verse, Psalm 16, you will show me the path of life. Your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And then in the Lucan version of the Beatitudes, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. 
Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. So our solemn fake piety is probably not really a good reflection of what Christ has in store for his people in heaven. It is a place where there is laughter and joy. And there's the good kind of solemnity, but not this self-important fake piety that's all too easy to fall into. The third theme, joy-filled obedience and servanthood characterize heaven. Every, as we go through this book, every one of these bright spirits, there's going to be joy-filled obedience and willing servanthood. It's almost impossible to imagine anything that is more contrary to what the theme of our culture is right now, where we are so scared that somebody's going to take advantage of us in even the most minute way uh, that this is, this is just completely the other side of that. And this is one of the uh, beautiful dialogues here. So it starts off with the bright spirit trying to convince the big man to come with him. Who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. You can clear off, see? You're not wanted. I may only be a poor man, but I'm not making pals with a murderer, let alone taking lessons from him. Made it hard for you in your life, did I? If I had you back there, I'd show you what work is. Come and show me now, said the other with laughter in his voice. It will be joy going to the mountains, but there will be plenty of work. You don't suppose I'd go with you? Don't refuse. You'll never get there alone. And I'm the one who was sent to you. And it's just, I mean, this makes you want to weep. It's so sad that this guy is being offered the chance to be happy to let go of this life of bitterness and shame and I'll show you what work is, to let go of all that and to embrace who God has made him to be. But he's so embittered, he's so embittered that the person holding out in his hand the gift of life to him, he just swats it away, just not interested. And look at these scriptures from Psalm 100. Oh, enter then his gates with praise. Approach with joy his courts unto. Praise, laud, and bless his name always, for it is seemly so to do. And if you want to meditate on that verse, especially if you're a scuba diver, go on YouTube and find the version of Psalm 100 that was written for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And it is one of the most stunning choral settings in the English language. And find the biggest screen that you've got in your house with big speakers and just play it and let that soak into your soul for a little bit. And then from Revelation, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And just think about that image. The God of the universe on his throne, sheltering his people with his presence. It's like in the Psalms of sheltering us under the shadow of his wings. It's beautiful and tender. And then this amazing verse from Hebrews 12. 
But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And I can't help thinking that Lewis wasn't contemplating this verse when he wrote some of this chapter, because you see the spirit of this righteous man made perfect here. A man who was not righteous because of his works, but righteous for having emptied himself and come to faith in Jesus Christ and being made perfect so that he offers himself to this horrible man who was just a horrible boss. Um, and then this whole joyful assembly of the angels and then this part about the sprinkled blood that speaks a more gracious word. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So entering heaven is entirely dependent on the bleeding charity. And this is one of Lewis's greatest plays on words. Um, if you know anything about England, you know bloody is not a word that you say in polite society. Bleeding is not a word that you say in polite society. It's sort of like the F word in our culture. Um, so it's somewhat shocking that US, Lewis uses this language in the 1940s in a book about the Christian faith. Uh, but the way he does it is absolutely brilliant. And you have to look at how Lewis capitalizes things in the text. So he is uh, giving us a window into this dialogue with the big man again. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best, and I never done nothing wrong. Wow. I never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be. Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. And of course what he's talking about is Jesus on the cross, the bleeding charity, love incarnate on the cross, bleeding to sprinkle us with that blood that we just read about in Hebrews that speaks a more gracious word. And even with that, the guy comes back, that may be very well for you, I dare say, if they choose to let in a bloody murderer, all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. But I don't see myself going in the same boat with you. See, why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. And if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago. And you can tell them I said so. Now, which one of these two people would you enjoy spending time with? But the thing that's so sad is that if we are honest and we look in the mirror, all of us have got some of the big man in us. All it takes 
is for somebody to cut you off in the drive-through line. And your rights go right to the front of your mind. How dare they? And we, we just go right down that path. But what Lewis is trying to show us is that the whole economy of heaven is just utterly different from that. Utterly different. And then this verse from 1 John. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. And then from Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And this word redemption is a big, heavy word because redemption uh, means so much more than we usually think of. It's sort of church lingo that we throw around and it shows up in hymns. But redemption comes from the idea of the price that was paid to ransom a slave. Someone whose life is gone, who is in slavery with no hope of ever being released, who is resigned to that fate, and then someone comes along and pays a price that is beyond probably what they're worth, that sets them free utterly from everything that they have been enslaved to and purchase their freedom. And that is what Jesus did through his blood. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And it is because of the riches of his grace. It is not because we were so smart or beautiful or attractive or deserved it or because our family was nice or they gave money to the church or whatever, all those things. It's none of that. It is according to the riches of his grace that he chose to set on us. And then Hebrews 9. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is something that Lewis is making so clear here, right on at the very beginning of the book, that we have no leg to stand on, that the only hope that we have is the bleeding charity. The only hope that we have is the finished work that Jesus did on the cross and being swept up into that as he, through his Holy Spirit, draws us to him. We think that it is all about we, we decide to follow Jesus, and that's part of it, but we couldn't do that if the bleeding charity on the cross hadn't opened the door for us. And then, in case you hadn't figured this theme out yet, pride and self-centeredness have no place in heaven where humility and servant-heartedness and good humor prevail. Part of what Lewis does so brilliantly in this chapter is he, and this is why it's so good to read out loud, the, the contrast between the way this guy, the big man, talks and the way the bright spirit talks is just night and day. And you can tell the bright spirit has been transformed and love is just pouring out of him, whereas the big man is just oozing bitterness and hatred. So here we go. You mind your own business, young man, said the ghost. None of your lips, see because I'm not taking any impudence from you about my private affairs. 
There are no private affairs, said the other. And I'll tell you another thing, said the ghost. You can clear off. See, you're not wanted. I may be only a poor man, but I'm not making pals with a murderer, let alone taking lessons from him. Made it hard for you in your life, did I? If I had you back there, I'd show you what work is. Come and show me now, said the other with laughter in his voice. It'll be joy going to the mountains, but there'll be plenty of work. You don't suppose I'd go with you? Don't refuse. You'll never get there alone. So that's the trick, as it shouted the ghost, outwardly bitter. And yet I thought there was a kind of triumph in its voice. It had been entreated. It could make a refusal. And this seemed to it a kind of advantage. I thought there'd be some damn nonsense. It's all a click, a bloody click. Tell them I'm not coming. See, I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights. See, not to go sniveling along on charity tied to your apron strings. If they're too fine to have me without you, I'll go home. It was almost happy now that it could, in a sense, threaten. That's what I'll do, it repeated. I'll go home. I didn't come here to be treated like a dog. I'll go home. That's what I'll do. Damn and blast the whole pack of you. Well, again, this is just tragic. This man is so trapped by his ego, by his pride, by his sense of deserving, by his thinking he's better than other people, by his refusal to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross or even think about it, that he says out loud, I would rather be damned, I'd rather be in hell than go with you. And this is why later on in this book, we will hear Lewis say, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And I'm going to share with you um, in a subsequent email uh, a wonderful sermon that Tim Keller gave about hell where he quotes extensively from the great divorce and it's some, some really helpful theology. But this is such an important point because we are in a culture where pride and self-centeredness are viewed as the most important thing ever, that you are expected to be proud, that you are expected to elevate yourself, to think about how great you are, and that you deserve all of these things just for being who you are and how amazing you are. And I'm not saying at all that uh, we forget that we're created in the image of God or any of those kinds of healthy things, but what I am talking about is the unhealthy narcissism that is in our culture right now that makes people think that they just deserve, they deserve all of these things. Um, and it's an entitlement kind of mentality. And part of the scary thing is that the clinical diagnosis of narcissism, the curve for that has been like an airplane taking off over the past decade. And the thing that's so sad is there is nothing, nothing that is guaranteed to make you more miserable than thinking that you are the center of the universe and that you deserve all of this treatment and respect and money and everything else that's just gonna come to you. Because the problem is, that's not gonna happen. And if you have that expectation, you are gonna perpetually 
live in disappointment and anxiety and probably in anger and bitterness at the people that didn't give you what you deserved. Uh, one of the things that you hear a lot right now um, in what I would call the psychobabble bubble um, of, of people that are life, well, I don't want to say life coaches because there are a lot of great life coaches, uh, but life coaches that are not rooted in a Christian worldview or anything like that, um, you will hear this language, you're enough. You are enough. And anybody that tries to make you feel like you're not enough, that person is toxic. So just don't spend time with them because you are enough. And the subtle thing with that is there's a slight bit of truth in there, but that's not what these people are talking about. They're not talking about the truth part. What they're trying to tell you is that you don't need anyone. You don't need anyone else. You most certainly don't need God. You are enough. You are self-sufficient. You can say to the rest of the universe, I am man or I am woman, hear me roar. Uh, you can just say that and everyone else is supposed to kowtow. But the problem is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And that is why there is such rampant anxiety and depression and all of these other things. And it is so opposite of what God has designed us for. Uh, one of the things most people learn at some point uh, in school is that when you actually go and serve other people, that brings you joy if you're doing it for the right reason and not to just get hours to tick off on your uh, college recommendation sheet. But we're, we are hardwired that when we serve others, it brings us joy. And we're also hardwired that if we're just trying to serve ourselves, it doesn't bring us joy. But the problem is we're so bullheaded that we don't believe it, and we just keep reenacting the same scenarios over and over again. And what Lewis is trying to show us here is that God has designed us for something utterly different from that. He has designed us to be in joyful worship of him, to be in subjection to him, to be worshiping the one who made us as we become made in his image and we get freed from uh, the distressing disguise of sin when we ultimately go to be in heaven, all of that distortion that has entered through the fall will be gone and we will perfectly reflect the image of God. And that kind of life is what we have to look forward to. But we, we begin that life even now. Remember in John 17, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And it's present tense. And what it means is that knowing Christ now, we are moved into this kingdom. And we can begin to see it as from afar and to appreciate it. But if we feed this kingdom mentality, it will transform our lives. But the problem is the mentality of the big man in this story is coming at us from every direction. And uh, when we were at clergy retreat, there was a great teaching on Philippians from John Yates uh, III. And one of the things that he said, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but he said the problem is that we are being uh, just inundated with media, whether it is media from the right, media from the left, media from the center, but it's all the same message. And that message is if you are not anxious about X and angry about Y, then obviously you don't really care about Z. And just think about that for a minute. 
If you are not anxious about X and angry about Y, then obviously you don't care about Z. And you could fill in the blank from across the political spectrum, and that would be true. And that is because we are in an age that wants to breed anxiety. And of course, what Jesus wants to do is to give us his love and perfect peace. And what we see in this uh, chapter is what that could begin to look like. Uh, so a little bit about pride here from the scriptures. Where then is boasting? Well, in our culture, boasting is all over the place. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. That's a big word. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. And then Paul in Galatians. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then from Proverbs that calls a spade a spade, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Well, that's kind of chilling because all of us are arrogant in heart in some way or another. But the great good news of this chapter is the great good news of the bleeding charity that is not based on having earned it or who you are or what religion um, you grew up in or any of those kinds of things, that we look to Jesus and when we come to him, he, just like in the parable of the prodigal son, he is waiting on the road for us to come back so that he can run he does that, the father in the parable runs out to greet the son and welcome him back home. And that's what Lewis is talking about in this chapter, and it is beautiful. And the more that we can get our heads around this, it will fire our hearts with that longing for heaven. So just to conclude this little verse from the preface, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Lord, following the voices of our culture, when infinite joy and peace are offered to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would know the hope to which you have called us and the power that you give us. Lord, that we would not settle for the things that this world offers, but that you would keep our eyes fixed on you Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be people characterized by unforgiveness and bitterness, but that instead we would be those who are full of mercy, full of mirth, full of joy, full of Jesus Christ. For we pray all this in his name. Amen. So next week, please do not come to this class uh, because it will be the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and we will not be here you will be all alone. But we will be back the next week, uh, so I'm looking forward to that.
please try to meet someone that you don't know uh, before you go tonight. And thank you so much for being here. Thank <laughs> you.